Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Join me for a very, very special episode where I get interviewed by the one and only John Kempf. Before all that, you will listen to a short interview by me where I ask John a few questions about his recently launched crowd investing campaign, the reasoning behind why he chose to go that less traveled route and how he feels about it about 24 hours into it. After that, you get a deep dive with me and John about all things regeneration and finance, which is also released on his podcast channel. So you might have already seen or heard it there. In any case, enjoy. Hi, friends. I'm back with Cohen again. We are having a follow-up conversation um, that is being recorded several weeks after we had our initial conversation. I can't, uh, I think you're really going to enjoy listening to the discussion that we had on the impacts of capital and agriculture, but we're back to talk about our crowdfund raising round that we are doing at Advancing Eco Agriculture. I'm quite excited about it. It's, it's really an opportunity for us to participate with the community. So Cohen, really glad to have you back here to um, have this conversation. You know, as I grew up in an Amish community, and um, as I've developed more of a perspective on how society at large works as compared to what I grew up with, I've come to gain uh, a deep appreciation for the power of community and what it really means to be a community, to contribute to each other's work and to participate with each other's work. And um, many people around the world, or at least here in North America that I see don't, don't get to experience that anymore. They don't get to really um, deeply appreciate and understand what it means to have symbiotic and collaborative relationships with the people around them. So this is really beautiful. No, absolutely. And I, it's interesting. We opened the, the, the follow-up conversation, obviously. Um, we don't talk about the, the current campaign because it wasn't live yet, but now we, we get to frame it a bit before you go into that before we go and we take you listeners uh, into that but i would love to um in this in this short um piece before flip the conversation a bit and ask you a few questions and i think the first one is um why take the let's say difficult route but definitely open and transparent route because in this campaign you can see everything and uh, you can see the data you can look behind the scenes of of your company and why did you take that route because i don't think you had a shortage of people knocking on the door wanting to invest, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, <laughs> uh, traditionally throwing money at you. I think that's the case. Um, but why did you choose to to involve literally the community uh, to such an extent? And it, it goes through quite, a, you need to go through quite a few steps to raise from community, even though the technology now makes it possible and the platforms, etc. But still, it's not an easy, an easy step. And it's quite an open and um, humble and potentially yeah quite quite transparent yeah it's uh the process has been intriguing that's for sure i think um we certainly we have something at aea that many companies wish they would have and that is we have the benefit and the credibility of having a track record of a decade and a half of in-depth experience in the region ag space like you, you you look around and like who, who else is in that category who else has that depth of of experience and there's not very many. And um, so to, to your point, you we've had to... vulnerable and open yourself up like that. Like you could also just well, take I'm, I'm just a few funds on that you talk to point. and then 
say, oh, we raised 10 million or we raised X and then continue to grow. Yeah. I'm just reflecting on uh, the point that you made of lots of people having approaches over the years, which certainly has happened. But I think, look, um, I, I've often made the point that regeneration is fundamentally about regenerating relationships, whether you're regenerating relationships between soils, microbes and plants, between livestock and the landscape, um, between people in the landscape and the food supply webs, whatever it is, regeneration is fundamentally about regenerating relationships. And so you have to ask, well, if you're regenerating relationships, what is, what's the degenerative version of a relationship? And that's a relationship that is very transactional and very extractive that you're not looking for the other, you're not looking out for the other participants, the other parties in that relationship. You are really seeking your own benefit and to optimize your own gains as much as possible. And this is in direct contrast to these biological systems where we have what we call symbiosis and symbiotic relationships, synergistic relationships where organisms support each other and help each other out. And it's not a strictly transactional relationship. And so I've always, for the last several years, I've been thinking deeply about uh, what does it mean and what does it look like for us as an organization at AEA to not just do regeneration, but to be regenerative and to have regeneration just hardwired into our DNA. And um, a part of that means having these symbiotic and synergistic relationships with our customers and with our employees and with the people that we participate in and work with. And it's like a typical employee relationship could be considered very transactional and very extractive. You exchange time for money and talent for money or whatever it is. Yeah, um, and the same is true of a customer supplier relationship. It's very transactional. I give you product X and you give me money, but we've wanted to develop much deeper, more authentic relationships with that. And this was, this crowdfunding campaign was the uh, the most administratively easy way for us to accomplish that and to give uh, the people we care about the opportunity to participate with AEA's growth in the future. And how does it manifest, this is a very deep rabbit hole, beyond the funding piece? I mean, actually, the funding piece is fascinating because I've been long amazed by people with a, a large network or a large, uh, no, not large network, large community around them of customers or clients that all have been um, like in a symbiotic relationship and they never asked this question like do you maybe also if you have the means want to financially get involved in the future of our company or not like that that question somehow never gets asked now we have the chance to do it um, because there are platforms to, to support and of course money is always at risk but that be able to ask that question is amazing but I actually want to ask a, a small follow-up question how does it manifest itself um, like how, how do you think this is different than raising from a few uh, impact funds or a few family offices or whoever approached you before and maybe putting in a significant amount and uh, this could be significant also for people putting in a few thousand of course but how is this different this crowd round compared to maybe another scenario where you would have raised from uh, the quote-unquote traditional finance world how do you see this different well um it is interesting to reflect on an earlier point that you made. It is interesting that we now have this opportunity for a crowdfunding campaign to launch this. And this, this, this didn't exist even what is Before it five years checks. ago? This is no. No. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's uh, it wasn't even legal. Like you couldn't raise money from non-accredited investors. So if you have um, if you have employees or customers who are not accredited investors, but this, this still gives them a pathway to yeah. participate. Just to be yeah, clear. And, and that. 
that that wasn't even a legal possibility half a dozen years ago. So it, it's quite interesting that we now live in a climate where this this possibility exists. But I think um, the there's a few answers that come to mind to the question that you asked is what are, what are the differences? Um, and the first is we have the opportunity now to be deeply aligned with people who care about our values, who care about the things that we care about, and uh, who want to participate in creating change in the world. Uh, and that can also happen with um, with investors, with VCs and so forth. But even the VCs and the investors who care about making an impact and making a difference still have a fiduciary responsibility to generate returns with the investments that they make. And so there is still this, uh, this inherent bias towards uh, the need to have that be a transactional and an extractive relationship. So just like we want to avoid having extractive relationships between uh, our growers and our employees and have symbiotic relationships there, we also want to have symbiosis with investors and with stakeholders in the enterprise. And um, so I think this, is, this has been an interesting pathway for us to think about how, how we can accomplish that outcome. And then you're a day in or less probably? No, yeah, more or less a day in. How, how do you feel? <laughs> calling well, in from, been, from Denver ready ready to go to RFSI but how do you yeah, from Battlefield how do you feel I'm, uh, I'll be on the stage at RFSI here in just a little bit but um, the you know it's it's quite exhilarating um, we have so we're uh, for all of our listeners who are, who are listening in we are launching this uh, campaign on a platform called WeFunder and we'll include the link in the show notes where you can access that uh, that is a platform that facilitates these types of transactions but um, WeFunder, WeFunder is not publicly releasing what we are doing to their investor audience just quite yet. Uh, we're giving them a week. I think we have until October 5th or 6th or somewhere in there where uh, they're intending to release that to that audience because we preferentially and specifically want to first give uh, exposure to people in the region of agriculture space. And so, um, yeah, yesterday morning, roughly... 26 hours ago or something like that, we announced it for the first time and uh, gave our team and our customers access to it. And um, we're targeting two and a half million. We're open to oversubscriptions, but our target is 2.5. And uh, we did 860,000 the first day. And <laughs> that, uh, that feels a bit like taking off like a rocket. It's pretty exhilarating. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Congrats. I know we want to keep this relatively short. You have a whole other hour with us after this, so don't worry, listeners. Um, and I want to wish you uh, a lot of luck with the campaign and, of course, a lot of fun at RFSI. Thank you, Cohen, and thanks to everyone listening in. Uh, I really want to invite you. Check out our page on WeFunder. Check out what we're up to. Uh, I really care about engaging with all of you. Many of you have listened to our work. You know about our work. And um, so I, I really am excited to have you participate with us in a much more substantial way. So thanks for all for you do. And now we're going to switch over to the fun conversation that I had with Cohen three weeks ago on the function and role of capital in facilitating Regen Ag. Thank you, Cohen. Have an awesome day. Thank you. Enjoy.
Hi friends, this is John and this is the Regenerative Agriculture Podcast. Welcome back. Here's where we talk about regenerative agriculture in all of its many facets, but with a particular focus on agronomy, but we talk about uh, water and plant nutrition and biologicals. You've enjoyed many of our conversations. But you've recently, in our most recent episode, I had a conversation with Anthony Corsaro about the roles of supply webs and uh, what is needed to really create an offtake, significant offtake in demand for regeneratively grown products. And Anthony made a very important comment that um, I didn't want to lose sight of, is that the elephant in the room is that we don't have enough capital moving into this space to support the transition of regenerative agriculture, not just in farmland, but particularly in these small CPG companies and so forth. And so for our conversation today, I'm really excited to have uh, Cohen Van Sion from the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture podcast. Cohen has been a good friend and deserves a tremendous amount of credit for really shaping this conversation and shaping the narrative of all the investment activity that is happening in the regenerative agriculture space over the last four or five years. So Cohen, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. I'd love to have you just tell us a little bit about your story and the the work that you the scope of the work that you're doing. You're doing so much and you've done so much for the last four or five years. Tell us what's been going on. Thank you so much. And thank you, first of all, for, for inviting me here. We've had you twice on the podcast and for sure there will be um, other other occasions but it's been a, a great pleasure listening to the many episodes you've done i remember very recently the one with charles eisenstein who really hit home um, with me and so thank you so much for having us here and of course uh, for for being a friend in the space and i think i would say the same uh, i would bounce it back to you in terms of shaping this space uh, we've had uh, i think both of us the great pleasure to have so many amazing people on uh, on air for for such a long time so just a bit about me i'm not a farmer so i'm gonna uh, really emphasize that immediately was born in the city center of rotterdam which is a, a tiny city or tiny it's a medium city uh, in the netherlands and i was always interested in food and, and not necessarily in agriculture but definitely in good food and over the years started to uh, look more into it and I would say stay more on the slow food side of things. So if we just all would buy slightly better uh, food, then everything would be fine. But I still vividly remember reading an article now 12, 13 years ago about holistic plant grazing in Australia. This was before Alan Savory was uh, famous, before the TED Talk and all of that. And it talked about two people, Bruce Wade and Tony Lovell, who was both an accountant, one accountant, Tony, and uh, Bruce uh, was a, a trainer on holistic plant grazing. And they both, uh, unfortunately, are no longer with us, but they talked about soil, they talked about grass, they talked about grazing, and they talked about carbon. And, and I really got hooked by that little, it was part, it was a chapter in a book, it wasn't even a full article. And I, like the numbers they were showing and the fact that food and agriculture could be part of the solution instead of just a smaller, less dirty part, let's say, of the problem around climate change, biodiversity, uh, and, and all of that. that, that really triggered me. And I reached out to Tony and, and he one day passed through Amsterdam because he was on his way to Denmark to raise a lot of money, uh, because th this is where the, the money part comes in as well. At the end of uh, the article or the end of the chapter, they mentioned somehow that they weren't just um, want to be consultants to farmers in transition, but they actually wanted to raise money to buy land, regenerate it and make a profit. And Tony was on his way to Denmark to meet some pension funds. And, and basically from that moment on, I started following this space. The space wasn't really existing, but let's say the, the space and what's the role of money in this in this transition and I got really really interested in that and got very surprised 
why the financial sector, and this means family offices, which manage money for uh, large families, which people that just recently sold companies, even people that won lotteries, etc., weren't really considering food and agriculture that much. And so I, I, I'm not a big investor myself as, as I'm not a, a farmer, but I wondered what could be my role in this space and what can I add here? And basically started recording interviews around that or conversations around that, I would say now six years ago. And that got, I think, safe to say a bit out of hand. Um, now 250 <laughs> episodes, 260, sorry, episodes in. And we still have, I think, another 500 to go. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's a bit of the journey. Well, I think... Uh... 500 to go is just a euphemism for there's no visible end in sight. No. <laughs> just wanted to make like a 2x on top of that, like 250 sounds. Yeah. It, it, I would have never imagined that, of yeah. course. I mean, we had a conversation on that I never imagined would be in this space. And we have the extreme luck that we get people that are doing stuff around regeneration, regenerative agriculture and food. And on our quote unquote sofa, where we can ask them everything and, and why, how, what they're doing, how, what are the barriers, what are the challenges, the opportunities and all of that. So that's been, of course, exactly the right moment, the right wave, and, uh, but extremely fortunate. I think you deserve tremendous credit for your continuous curiosity and learning and sharing those conversations online, because uh, when I look at how this, this is still a very early stage space, but when I look at how the space has evolved when you and I met at the RFSI conference a year or two ago, I made the comment that from my observation, from what I can tell, I would say your your work and your podcast has brought groups like the RFSI conference together probably three to five years earlier than what would have happened without your presence in the space. But I think you've you've been successful in accelerating the conversation that much. And so the entire farming community, the entire space owes a tremendous debt of gratitude to you. So thank you for all that you've done. Thank you. I would never take that that kind of credit. But of course, if somebody tells you that, it's very nice to hear. But I, I think we've been extremely lucky at the right timing. Of course, we kept going. We kept interviewing. But at the same time, you see the world waking up to the potential. I think you're absolutely right. We're super, super, super early. But at the same time, I could have never imagined uh, some serious family offices, some serious foundations, some serious institutional investors, meaning banks, pension funds, um, insurance companies that manage the real large amount of money talking about regeneration and talking about regenerative agriculture. Is it the level we would like to? Absolutely not. Um, is it a start? Yes, because five to, I remember 10 years ago when I talked to investors about soil and you sort of saw their their eyes look away, like, okay, there must be some, a more interesting person to talk to at a conference. Um, and that has changed, uh, not because I became more interesting, but because the whole movement has changed and, and we finally understand, still very, very premature, but finally understand the importance, like, probably the most if you're interested in health if you're interested in inequality if you're interested in the big questions around land ownership if you're interested in biodiversity interested in uh, chemical in fossil fuel climate like you all end up in uh, on soil at some point and and start taking that more seriously like we haven't really done so we we cut the right wave that's uh, timing is everything your comment reminds me of the signature that Gail Fuller has on his email, soil is the answer. What was the question? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that's been tremendous, tremendously interesting to play in this arena and to be at places like RFSI and to, and to be there without um, having to build a big fund, having to represent, having to farm and, and play the role of connector, interviewer and, and following the space. And it gives a huge amount of responsibility, obviously. Uh, as well, but it has been an amazing ride and, and get me to, to places like this. Well, it is a tremendous responsibility, but it also it gives you a very um, 
I don't really like the word privileged in this context, but to some degree a privileged position in that you have the opportunity to have all these conversations and to be kind of the uh, the brain that is the nexus of all this information coming together. You just keep going with these. Uh, with this, let's let's lower the pressure a bit for this conversation. All right. But no, we we do get the chance to because we're not running a farm or a company like you are. We get the chance and the responsibility because we have time to to talk to a lot of people and to to try to connect. The, the brains and I like more even the hands doing stuff with with each other, which surprisingly often are not connected. Like we've introduced people to each other yeah. in this movement in Australia and coming from very far, that just doesn't make sense. But at the same time, I understand when you're deep in, quote unquote, the weeds and working really hard on your farm, on your fund, on your uh, your company, your factory, then you don't have time. And so we, we try to be that connector role, that tissue, the mycelium or whatever we want to call it. So as, as you've been on this journey and um, have learned about the various leverage points to facilitating change, I'd love to just get your take from a big picture perspective. What is the role that capital can play in facilitating adoption of regenerative agriculture on scale? Where do we need capital? And there's so many conversations around money in agriculture that you alluded to. So for us, particularly for our audience, uh, many of us are farmers and agronomists. What are the things that we should be thinking about and the impact that money can have on the landscape? That's a really good question. I would say the first thing to realize for, for your audience or in general, that there's a lot more types of capital out there than you would imagine. Um, I have met, I've had the privilege to meet many, many farmers. And for many, the only relationship to capital is relatively extractive and usually called a bank. And let's say there's a world of capital around there. It doesn't mean you should take it, but there is there is a growing amount of uh, different types of capital um, available for people that are in transition. Available meaning that you're taking a huge responsibility. You're taking someone else uh, someone else's money, put it to work, and it ideally goes back plus a return. And that's, I think, the second point is you should really wonder how dependent you want to be on outside capital. Like there is, a, of course, many farmers are dependent on yearly loans and operating capital, etc. Uh, but that's a risk. And, and many have uh, unfortunately experienced uh, the negative side of that as well. Like money is an extremely, uh, capital, as you say, an extremely uh, powerful tool. We've mostly used it, we meaning general society, as a, as a very extractive one. It has potential of being regenerative when handled with care or let's say when handled with certain boundaries. Uh, but it's very, very powerful. So we should definitely see it as a tool that could be destructive and could be regenerative or could be con- creating more life. And I think if we approach it from that, assuming that most of the capital you will find on your way will be on the extractive side, so be careful, there are definitely, and there is a growing number of, uh, of pools, which could be flexible loans, which could be interesting equity options, which could be, um, I see them popping up every day or almost every day in terms of how to enable farmers to, to transition faster. And I think the faster piece here is is fundamental. It's an accelerator. It's not going to enable you to start. Like it, there's there's a, a very big transition needed between your ears, which of course you help with, with the podcast and in the market sides, like where are you going to sell, the input side, the advisory, etc. But capital is one of those tools that can help accelerate. But I would be wary of, of saying it is the most important or um, if there was only more capital, we would go faster because it, it, it is, quote unquote, just a tool to accelerate something that hopefully should already be going. But it can definitely help. It can definitely help. You can bring forward things. You can build larger compost facilities. Many things cost money in this world and planting trees is one of them. So if you want to go faster, money could be, and I'm not saying it's the only, but it could be an option to accelerate 
It's a few. It's a few of a process. When you think about money as a tool to accelerate, and many, many farmers speak about the need to have a team around them. Their team includes their financial support, their agronomist uh, support, their technical advisors, what their veterinarian, for example. So you have a team of support around the farm and finance and money is usually a part of that. You mentioned that money that has certain boundaries around it, uh, its use and the way that it's deployed can not feel or not have an extractive relationship to the same degree, but a truly regenerative relationship Tell us a little bit about what that might look like. What uh, what types of boundaries does capital have around it to transfer, to transition from extract of capital to a more relationship, uh, collaborative relationship type scenario? Yeah, sure. I mean, it could start with very simple things like flexibility. If you have certain loan agreements that um, are flexible in terms of uh, if it's a really objectively bad year, let's say, there might be... Uh, not immediately a penalty or immediately a need for a renegotiation. Let's say um, light adjustments. We've had examples on the podcast. Of course, we've uh, of course we we've talked with the the people Mad Agriculture, the people behind the perennial fund, which really started with a profit sharing um, or revenue share. So that's really to sit on the side of the farmer and share the revenue in good and bad, which means if it's bad, there's not much to share, obviously. Profit sharing could be interesting there as well, but they noticed that many farmers don't want to. Uh, They were more interested at the end of the day, which is interesting because we as investors and people coming from finance in the city um, really imagine, oh, this would be amazing for X, Y, Z. And then, of course, at the end of the day, the reality is different. So that was very interesting to see that they adjusted back and basically pivoted to uh, a relatively straightforward but still very flexible loan agreement with a fixed payment instead of the profit sharing where from almost like a value perspective, you'd say, okay, it's better to sit on the side of the, with the farmer if there's a lot of profit. We share. If there's none, we don't. Of course, you have to model it well, etc. cetera. Uh, but actually, many farmers just wanted the security or wanted to, to know what they would be paying. So you have those kind of models. And then we interviewed a farmer in Australia that bought the neighbor's land. And basically, this is more on the extreme side, um, wrote a holistic context together with the investor, which is a, a large family, in or a wealthy family could be a small family in Australia and they decided that a a single interest rate point wasn't really going to work for them because what if it was a really bad year and they had to destock this was a livestock operation or is a livestock operation Uh, they uh, were incentivized if they still had to pay five six seven eight whatever the percentage was um, then they would not completely destock would hurt the land in a very dry year which of course Australia has been having and basically hurt the underlying asset So they decided to make a formula based on two things, um, based on the rain, so the precipitation every year and the ground cover. So one thing they could control partly, which was ground cover, and one thing they couldn't, which of course was the weather. And based on that, it um, like an interest rate earned rate came out of that. Um, In really good years, it would be pretty high and in really bad years, it would be zero. And meaning that the farmer said, I'm incentivized to completely destock and take care of our shared asset, which is the land. Of course, he also said, ask me again in 10 years to see how this worked. We're working with him to see if we can share the terms of this or that formula. Um, so hopefully that, that we'll be able to share soon because it's one of the first I've heard to really align investor with farmer and immediately have to warn all the listeners. It's very rare you find an investor that is able also mentally and, and education wise to, to go that far, but already writing a list of context together already. But that's what we need. We need more experimentation on this side and, and we need more farmers that want that. We need more investors that want to take a step in that direction and see, okay, how can we move beyond 
the very standard agreements that we just that haven't really been working, let's say, to speed up the transition. When you think back on your journey over the last half a dozen years and the many conversations you've had, what are some of the really memorable stories and experiences that stand out to you that uh, you recall very clearly? I mean, still remember vividly, of course, getting into the space on the carbon side, um, but then more recently or over the last um, years, seeing that carbon is only a very small part of the story. Of course, there's all the aside, uh, excitement around selling the soil carbon credits and all of that. But if you notice our, our latest interviews in, in the last year or two, we have rarely paid attention to that. Um, simply not because I don't think it's going to be a, a part of the story in the toolbox, but I just see more hype than substance there. And instead, been getting much more interested in the water side of things. Um, so the water cycle, and I definitely have to shout out uh, Judith D. Swartz, uh, who wrote, uh, I think, Water in Plain Sight, and of course, a book on cows, Cow to Save the Planet, Cows Saving the Planet. Um, I'm butchering the t- titles here, but both of them amazing, really learned a lot and, and really put me on a path, especially the water one, to, to dive deeper into that. We're now making a full series um, if uh, water is more important than carbon. And, and it's been an absolute pleasure to see how the climate science has been uh, mainly focused on carbon. But actually, if you go back not so long ago, it was focused on land use and carbon. We sort of lost that first bit of land use. And now the work is, is, is happening to get it back into, uh, back into the climate science piece and the cooling effect on water, landscape scale regeneration, all those uh, kind of uh, quote unquote magical things. Um, I'm very interested in that. It's been amazing to do this series with Dr. Mian Mian, who has been advocating for this. I think he's 85 now uh, and finally getting some recognition now, which is uh, um, better late than never, but still a, a bit sad. And, and also practitioners in the space, Neil Spackman, if you don't know his work, Google permaculture in Saudi Arabia and you get a video, uh, which has been remarkable. And uh, Thies van der Hooven, who's working on the Sinai restoration and, and things like that that's really it's been a very hopeful um, scale potential impact piece and, and something that i see uh, very much neglected uh, in uh, in any media and, and also in the regenerative space honestly i think uh, you used a, a very appropriate adjective the magic the magical potential that exists from regenerating the small water cycle at a, a at an ecosystem level it's also a topic i've been interested in for a long time have you um have you come across peter andrews work he wrote a really interesting I've book heard his a, name yeah he's a rancher from australia who has uh, understands water cycles in groundwater and water hyd- hydrological landscapes perhaps better than anyone I've ever read. He wrote a fascinating book titled Back from the Brink. I think one of our guests, I'm blanking on the name, mentioned we should absolutely interview him as well. Yeah, we should. Yeah, and then there's also um, Peter Volleben, who um, he, he wrote several different books. Of the book, of the trees, yeah. Yeah, the tree, the tree whisperer, perhaps. Doesn't seem quite right. Yeah, or the social network of trees, something like that. Or if trees could talk, or trees can talk, something. Uh, anyway, if you, that, that's been an amazing one as well. Yeah. It's really remarkable to all of a sudden this phenomena that we have of the rain shadow east of the Rockies. And uh, it makes you realize in the history, we read how in Greek and Roman times, the Sahara Desert was a rainforest where you could, uh, the story is that you could cross all of Northern Africa on foot without ever coming out from underneath the shade of a tree. 
And today that's the Sahara Desert. That's only a few thousand years ago, a couple thousand years ago. And so it makes you realize that, in fact, if you interrupt that small water cycle in those first couple hundred miles from the eastern seaboard, you've effectively turned the rest of the continent into a desert. And when you look at how that desert is just continuing to grow and continuing to spread and migrate, and the same is true in the American Southwest, where we have desertification, we damaged or disrupted our small water cycle on the southwestern coast in California and northern Mexico. And now that desert is just moving up through the American Southwest and continuing to constantly expand because of the way that we're mismanaging those landscapes. Yeah, and it triggers with me, it triggers one piece of hope. Like we are the keystone species that did that. We might be able to to turn it around. It also gives me a piece of almost not, not scaredness but something like okay let's say you're farming there or you're investing in a farm or you're very and and like whatever you do unless you restore the water cycle in the full landscape enough you'll be sort of fighting against a war you cannot win because the size of your landscape like if your watershed is is moving towards desertification like whatever you do on your piece of land it will be have a lot of impact but still you're you're dealing with less rain less like unless you're enormous so there's also the piece of your force too which is very helpful but also very difficult to to think beyond your farm gate and to think beyond your piece of land even if it's enormous in australia you own hundred thousand hectares still it's probably not enough to to affect it i don't know cohen i i've had this question of what is the minimal scale that is necessary to really be effective and the one example that's widely known is Alex Carrillo from the uh, Chihuahua Desert in Mexico, who is, I forget now, 13,000 acres, who has without question significantly altered the local ecosystem at a scale of 13,000 acres. I mean, yes, it's still big, but in a desert environment, that's really not that big. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And I think we're going to see now, and that's why I'm excited. And I keep asking this question as well to people, like, or have we seen our quote unquote iPhone moment? Not that that the best thing to compare to but like is it different now and i think investors often should ask that question and 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 are asking like okay great this we've known this for a long time another one is nutrient density we can get to a bit as well but we've known this for a while now and actually some of the science goes back a long time some of it is uh, indigenous knowledge which is going back for forever so what is different now why should i invest now in in this space and not just wait until the moment is right or until more things are in place and maybe now is the moment because we have some pieces of technology, because we are we have modeling power and this rear computer power to figure out, okay, where's these 13,000 acres that, that are the most important one to do first? Because we have limited resources, there's a lot of money, but still very limited resources. So where do you go first in a full landscape or a watershed? Like what are the, the first nodes we have to, or the levers we have to plant first and change first and then move around to start to kickstart that process? And I think there's a huge knowledge piece missing like because we all think about okay this is a piece of soil this is a field this is the hectare etc but not think okay what does this mean in a full watershed and where should i focus my attention first and then i'm not saying let's not do the rest but where where to go first with limited resources limited time to kickstart the system is it closer to the to the water body is it a bit further is it closer to the mountain range i have no idea what species what what is the fastest trigger because we're running out of time but those questions, I think, are going to be solved by entrepreneurs and going to be solved by, by companies more than NGOs, governments, etc. And, and I would love to be able to interview them, follow them, however magical they might sound. Like a few of them are going to be very, very right. And we like we all deserve to pay attention to them. No, we they deserve to be paid attention to them and back them with whatever resources we have. Yeah. Do you have any other um, 
you, you mentioned Neil Spackman's work and um, others like that. Do you have any other uh, examples of the magical possibilities that people should be paying attention to? Yeah, I would say the work of Mila, Mian Mian, um, mainly around the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean Sea is a very specific uh, water body, and he's been documenting, uh, it's a scientist from Valencia, but also worked in Canada for a long time, uh, why the rains have been missing, the afternoon rains, the summer rains that have always uh, basically fell onto, especially the Spanish side of things. And then and he basically documented, because of the huge tourism uh, development at the coast, the wetlands disappeared, and then everything else was cleared until up to the, uh, the mountain range. And I think now he's getting attention. He's also the one that really pushed the, the story on uh, why the water cooling effect is so important uh, and not only carbon. He's no longer going to do it. I think he's 86 or 85, like I mentioned before. Right. Uh, but I see, I can imagine in Spain, people are going to figure out, okay, in this watershed or this mountain range from the coast up to the mountain, there's very cheap land available. It's mostly been abandoned up like close to the hill where, where the, the clouds go up. If I can convince some people in down in, with the hotels and all the development to take out some of the concrete or to somehow make it not a wetland again, but enough to, to help the clouds recharge, I can imagine people are going to um, make a business out of that and wait for five, six, seven years until the water cycle, the small water cycle is restored and your trees that you planted at that time or seven years ago uh, will be rain fed again and you basically created your own irrigation like you can plant rain which is or you can plant water which is such a powerful crazy magical statement to make but i think people are going to take that so spain definitely the sinai is super interesting with teas and the weather makers and definitely google that if you're interested in that uh, there's a fascinating article in the guardian about them i'm sorry let's let's go back the weather makers yeah the weather makers are working on basically regreening the sinai uh, desert which is uh, between egypt and and israel and, and basically triggering a whole that, that used to be the Garden of Eden like it used to be and, and triggering a whole set of, of effects in which on that whole region which have of course been suffering from extreme mismanagement of landscapes let's say um, it's very ambitious it's not an easy place um, but if anybody deserves support to try and let's see if it works because it is desert mostly desert now um, let's let's back them and they 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 had a long piece in the Guardian a newspaper from the UK basically saying maybe what we miss is not necessarily money but imagination that this could work and I think we miss that in many places like Neil Spackman we had a long interview with him like why is it not easy to raise money for these kind of things because we sort of cannot even imagine that desert could turn green or that it used to be like you said the Sahara used to be not so long ago this is really not long ago in our time frame like that fact that we miss that it's very difficult then to wire money into something like that because you just cannot imagine that could even work because we're so used to seeing degraded landscapes. Yeah, I think this, in my mind, this really is the work. Like in our work that we're doing at Advancing Eco Agriculture and helping to support farmers, it's actually, a, this is a conversation that has come up with a couple of our team members repeatedly. They would probably think it's magical what you do. Like that sounds too good to be true. And then you lost them. You're like, how do you, how do, you do that then? How do you make sure you're sort of downplay the effect and make sure they try yeah, we have incredible stories and successes with our team, but our team internally, there's a few members that uh, keep coming back and saying, John, yeah, we're having so much fun. We're doing amazing work, but when are we going to start regenerating whole landscapes and whole at an, at an ecosystem level? It's like uh, this, this is really the work. This is the work of this century, really, and the next couple of decades. This is the place where we need to be focusing. And what do you think then is the strategy to work farmer by farmer until you get a critical mass in a landscape and critical mass also of, of consciousness and of probably also financial, um, let's say financial profitability or at least calmness that you can think about these things. Of course, if you're living paycheck by paycheck, 
it's not going to think about my amazing watershed restoration. But what do you see there? Have you seen some landscapes going into that mode of like, what happens if we think about the whole landscape or are we still too early? Um, we very seldom have the, uh, we very seldom have a nexus of enough scale to produce ecosystem uh, benefits density that, is not there. We, yeah. that we're observing. Yeah, the density is not there at this point. There's a few local regions where I think that is uh, we're right on that threshold, and it's 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 interesting to see what is happening in this. Actually, going back to a point that you made about carbon, it's we really need to regenerate water cycles and not just focus on carbon. But from an agronomic or an agricultural perspective, I think Walter Yenin says it well. He says, "Yes, we do need to sequester carbon, but not to get the carbon out of the air, but to regenerate the water cycle." Yeah, no, Walter, we we had him is is one of the other. Um, but I, I was already in a journey with, with Judith, but I think he it was one of the ones that kick-started that, or, or accelerated, sorry, it's a better word, accelerated the process with us at least. Uh, what an amazing communicator and, and storyteller and scientist as well. It endlessly uh, pushes on, on the water cycle restoration, uh, even though the rest of the world is still on the carbon funnel. I very serendipitously happened to live at a home where we have a small river about a half a mile to both the east and the west of us. And we're surrounded by this eastern hardwood forest. So we're in a very water-rich environment. And this this summer, we have had the most beautiful, incredible weather, like these consistent, beautiful rainstorms and thunderstorms every four to five days. It's like you couldn't benefit from irrigation in this environment. And, and also... One of the phenomena that we've had, we've lived here for three years now, and at first I was surprised, and I'm now only now starting to get used to it. We have this very heavy fog almost every night, I'd say six nights out of seven pretty easily. We have this very heavy fog that lasts, uh, it's low to the soil surface, doesn't even go up to the treetops, but it just, uh, in the open cleared areas, it's maybe 15 to 20 feet tall, and... um, it stays there the entire night. It comes up in the evening and disappears again at sunrise. And that's given me a lot to think about because I'm thinking about, okay, how do we, how do we develop this property? I'd like to eventually perhaps start a berry farm, perhaps do some uh, grapes and some raspberries and various crops. The conventional thought process is that that constant humidity, that constant moisture represents a threat because it creates an environment that is conducive to disease. But as I was thinking about this, you know, what if we what if we change that narrative? What if we need to begin thinking about that this differently? Because one of the things that we know is that the absorption of nutrients through foliage happens extraordinarily efficiently and rapidly when the leaves are moist. And so you have the opportunity for lots of absorption of nutrients through the foliage. And I'm just I'm observing the plants, I'm watching the plants grow, and it's like an eastern rainforest, like you could you could legitimately call this an eastern rainforest. And so it's really given me a lot to think about just to your point of inspiring the imagination. Like we need to begin imagining what could these ecosystems look like if they were functioning differently. And so, yeah, I, uh, I've got a lot of dreams about how this might evolve in the next uh, three to five years and how we might begin farming this. But perhaps Perhaps we develop a system to spoon feed nutrients through foliage uh, a couple nights a week. Anyway, I could go on and on, but I'll, I'll pause there. The, the point I wanted to make, though, is that many of us, to just echo the point you made earlier, many of us have a difficult time imagining what these 
water-rich ecosystems and environments and landscapes might look like because we haven't experienced them and we don't uh it's hard to imagine something you've never observed yeah and then imagine if you're not living on the land not farming every day and you're managing wealth and and we can have a whole discussion of if that's uh, fair or not to have so much concentrated wealth in in the hands of a few but the truth is that the current system or that's at least what we have to deal with now like if you live in the city or even if you live um in the countryside but you're not farming every day then to have that to take the step and really understand what a landscape could look like is even further away from you compared to if you're you're deep into the subject etc so we should another point to make about the, the financial world is there's a lot of education needed there's a lot of education needed both on the farming side and the farmers for what and finance would look like but also in the finance world what is even possible and what is normal and what is not normal and so we we are really at the beginning of of this journey of landscapes and agriculture and food production could look like and and i'm not saying we should go into la la land and just imagine and dream only um, but it would help because we are really stuck in many very very reductionist um, approaches both on finance and science and on farming and it just doesn't help us very much well the this conversation we've just been having is about looking at and looking at the water cycle and looking at the the interaction between the water cycle and the landscape from a holistic context and the scientific method doesn't lend itself very well to agriculture generally because it wants to obsess with uh, generally um, with single factor analysis and only looking at single factor changes in isolation which just doesn't work in biological systems nor does the financial world which only wants to look at one number usually which is the return maybe a bit on the risk side but we're not very good at that imagine we add a third which is impact and just things get very very complicated and yet but that's where we need it but that's where we need we need i mean and i'm i'm very convinced and i see it happening every day we see a wave of people now actually that have experience elsewhere um meaning they've built companies that might sold companies they have experience with getting stuff done and they're getting super excited about food and agriculture and i think that's what we really need our podcast helps them to get up to speed of what's happening, who to reach out to, what's missing, um, where to work or what to start building in terms of companies, etc. Um, and we really need that because we miss just more people in the space, more people that obsess over watershed restoration and what kind of financial tools we can build around that, etc. Because I am very convinced that in the near future, many more the financial world or, or other people will wake up to the potential of regeneration as a whole. So there will be a lot of attention for the sector. There will be a lot of interest to put money to work. And we always ask the question on the podcast, what would you do? You probably had the best prepared answer, actually, uh, with a billion dollars. But I, I asking it because it's not a joke. Like I get people reaching out with which managing significantly more than that. And they want to get involved and they just don't know where to start. They don't know what to do. And unless we and I'm saying general, we as a sector give them the infrastructure, the tools to put that money to work, to put some of it really to make significant change, they will go somewhere else because money needs to work and we'll go to another sector and we'll go to some fancy PowerPoints. And we need to, and the attention is not so strong yet, but we need when it comes and it starts to, to build up, when significant players start to want to deploy, we need to be ready. We need to be ready to write 100 million, to accept uh, 100 million plus checks and to, to put it to work in a way that makes significant change in the soil, significant change for farmers and local communities. And that's going to be a very tense tension, like in dance, but we need to be ready for those questions because they're going to come and that pressure and tension and resources will flow to the sector because there's simply no other way 
Uh, we can get health outcomes, we can get climate outcomes, we can get water outcomes, we can get biodiversity outcomes. When you think about the the tension that that will create and, and the the need to be prepared to accept those $100 million checks, where do you see the areas of opportunity for growers today? How, how do we as an industry, how do we move, how do we evolve to be prepared to accept those $100 million checks and bigger? It's a good question. I don't think individual growers, I mean, depending on your size, will, will deal with that kind of numbers, maybe luckily because it brings enormous pressure as well. But I think you mentioned Anthony Corsaro already before. There's a layer above or beyond that in terms of CPG brands, in terms of people that are, are going to process and sell these kind of the, the materials and the supplies coming from your farms. There, there's a lot of opportunity for growth and a lot of shortage of money right now because it's very difficult to build a CPG brand, obviously, with a lot of risks. So I think there's a lot of space there to invest in a way that then flows back to the farm, meaning much better offtake agreements. We've talked about it before as well, but we can endlessly talk about the financials of a farm. But if you don't somehow capture some of the value you create for the outside world through carbon, through water, through premiums, through quality, through flavor, I'm just naming five, but there must be more. It's going to be very, very, very difficult just with input costs alone going lower, like if, just with reducing your input costs, it's going to be very difficult to become financeable for individual farms. Not impossible at all, but difficult. Um, so I think we for those amounts, we should look more upstream or downstream, whatever you want to look at it beyond the farm gate. That's not to say that there might be investment ways to bundle five, ten farms and to somehow pay for water outcomes with this, those kind of mechanisms could be outcome-based payment schemes could be many many things but I'm not saying here let's put 100 million into one farm because that usually goes wrong um, so much concentration but I think we should start to think about what if an insurance company they don't move with less than 100 million and so do we want to engage with that and if we want to what does it look like and how do we make sure we don't repeat the same extractive tensions uh, and concentration that the sector the financial sector usually pushes towards, but it could also be processing. But maybe my main uh, answer to that would be make sure you organize, make sure it's not individual farmers will be played out by the system very, very easily. So it could be cooperative, could be co-owned facilities, could be processing, could be because all of that is very, very needed, could be machinery, but make sure you organize yourselves because you don't want to be a single one to deal. You're never going to deal with a large investor if you're just between brackets one farmer. So I think organization and making sure more money comes back to the farm is the single is, is the big driver there. And it could be through other machinery, processing, setting up brands together, whatever is needed in your context to, to make sure you have more freedom and more independency and more agency. Yeah, it's such an important point, Cohen, and I completely agree with you in that we have the narrative that has really inspired many people to begin farming regeneratively over the last four or five years is that of reducing inputs, increasing profitability, reducing inputs. And even in our work at AEA, uh, we have a fairly a very consistent track record of being able to help increase yields while reducing input costs at the same time. And so if that pattern continues for the foreseeable future, and I have no reason to expect otherwise, then that means the regenerative producers very rapidly become the low-cost producers. But that is not the pathway to long-term success in healing relationships. You want that. Yeah, yeah it's, well, it's healthy on one side of the ledger, but we also need to, to decommoditize ourselves and we need to make sure that we are not just producing commodity foods because if, as long as we are producing commodities, even if we become the low-cost producer, let's, let's just, 
imagine for a moment that we're 15 years down the road and we have now 80% of farmers producing a given crop have adopted these regenerative agriculture management practices. And now you've again balanced out and everyone is now equally a lower cost producer, but you're still competing for the same commodity price point. Who's going to take that lower cost? <laughs> it's not you. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not the farmer. And so the the point that you're making is, I think, extremely important in that we need to collectively work together and figure out how to decommoditize ourselves by whatever mechanism and means that might be for our given farming operation enterprise. And it's ownership and it's it's control and it's agency and it's getting out of the because that gets to the nutrient piece as well, which for sure we'll cover. But like if you're amazingly grown regenerative practices, all of it, high quality flavor and nutrient density through the roof. Uh, goes into an extremely processed, ready-to-eat meal, are you going to be very happy with that? Apart from that, you're probably not going to get paid very well for that. But like, what's the, are you growing food? Like, there's a very fundamental piece there to wrestle with. Like, it's not easy to decommodify, obviously, otherwise we would have done it. Um, But it doesn't mean we shouldn't really engage because what you said, restoring relationships start there and starts with not being a commodity because you're going to be replaced by whoever they, and I'm using they very deliberately here, can find wherever else cheaper for by a cent and, and you'll be replaced in a second. And yeah, that's that's not an easy message and, and not an easy path because it means getting into all kinds of other sectors that you're probably not used to in terms of processing, ownership, uh, all of that. But I think it's a fundamental one if we want to have also rural prosperity, um, local jobs, all of that. We need to really wrestle with this elephant. So several times in this conversation, you've mentioned nutrient density in the context of, uh, of decommoditizing and uh, of a pathway forward. It's another series we're very happy with. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's I, I would say maybe slightly less exciting than the magic of water cycle restoration, to be honest, the small water cycle. But at the same time, that connection, healthy soil, healthy produce, healthy gut system, healthy people, and of course, healthy ecosystems. Could that be, and that's the big question we try to answer, could that be the key to unlock larger consumer demands than just the soil carbon geeks uh, that we are? And that question is still out there. We don't know. What gets you excited about nutrient density? I mean, listening to conversations you had with, with Dan Kittridge of the Bionutrient Food Association, and that really got me on this path as well. I mean, the potential, again, of decommodification and the potential of health, not only for me personally, for my family, obviously, Uh, But also, I think the potential of many more people being interested in eventually soil because they're interested in health and because they're interested in their health and their uh, their family's health. I think the potential of reaching more people that are willing to pay or even to search, not not paying even a premium, but to search for something specific because they know that tomato has X times uh, the amount of phytonutrients you need or X times or this tomato is not that tomato. I think that's another one of those imagination or visions or, or consciousness we need to get to like this potato is different from that potato depending on the way it was grown depending on where etc this tomato is different this piece of beef is different this like that decommodification piece there i'm excited about it not only because of my health and because it, it shows that flavor is connected to taste and is, of course it's connected to taste to nutrient density to soil but also because of the potential that i'm imagining that most people you would ask are at least more interested in in health than they are interested in in water cycles, biodiversity, and soil carbon. 
Well, when you think about it, you, <laughs> you used the word imagining uh, quite a few times in that, uh, in that answer, which is, uh, I think, very appropriate, because obviously we have to imagine the better world that our hearts know as possible, as Charles would say. So when I, when I imagine what could a future possibility, if, if we fully invested, and I don't mean invested in money, but if we as a society collectively invested emotionally in the concept of nutrient density, what might that future look like? Imagine a space where at the, the governmental level, we had the USDA and FDA and NIH all coordinating to produce and to incentivize the production of food that had medicinal value and would pre prevent us prevent us from becoming ill and reduce our dependency on drugs. And there's there's a lot of motivations for this from a from a collective productivity perspective, from a reduced uh, healthcare cost perspective, there are, there are benefits here for insurance companies, medical insurance and life insurance and so forth. And so there's so many incentives, but of course there are a few industries that would be left completely outside of that uh, economic benefit, at least as it currently exists. And principally agribusiness and pharmaceuticals are the two obvious ones that come to mind. Um, so there... They're often the same as well, <laughs> interestingly enough, yeah. No, no, I think that's that's why I get excited because this is such a big shift economically, which will have such benefits for us, like our planetary health, our personal health and our farm health. And so it deserves all the attention and, and all the investments and all the grants it can get into to see how do, can we unlock uh, that consciousness, that interest and that on, on the institutional level, the farming level, but also on the consumer level and of course the companies level. I think there's a, a big piece there that we're going to see food as medicine companies. And we're going to see a lot of BS as well, unfortunately. I'm sorry. Um, but it's also going to be very interesting to see if the consumer is in, more interested in that than another certification, for instance. I have to wonder, if I take this one step further, like, how would our society look different? How would our culture be different if people were vibrantly healthy and mentally focused and sharp and clear as a society? And, and I have this interesting perspective in that I grew up and I'm still a part of an Amish community, the fourth largest Amish community in the world, where certainly the food culture is not what it once was, but it is still generally true that it is a much cleaner and healthier and higher quality food culture than society at large. And I look at this particular group of people that I'm surrounded with, and also the, to some degree, you could almost call it an echo chamber, the echo chamber of regenerative farmers that I'm surrounded with and that I get to interact with every day. And here is a group of people who are generally very concerned about health, who are very mentally sharp, focused, alert. They, they prioritize uh, building valuable, healthy relationships with each other, with their family, with their community. And I contrast that with society at large, which is drugged up, eating crap, and increasingly has a dysfunctional, yeah, feeling crap. And it's, I think you could call it a, a failure of culture, a dysfunctional culture where people are fighting with each other more than they are building community. And honestly, I'm speaking in very broad sweeping generalities and uh, none of these things are universally true. Don't start sending <laughs> emails, please. Yeah. No, do, do. No, I think it's fascinating. I think there's an underlying, like, how can we be happy culturally as well and have deep work done if we're not healthy and well-fed and not well-fed in terms of cal calories because for the most part we figured it out 
And now the question is how to go beyond that. So that's why I'm excited about it because of it's like, there are also two sides of the same coin because we cannot imagine what a healthy ecosystem looks like probably unless we, we walk in a, in, in a jungle somewhere and we think, oh, this is interesting. Um, but we can also almost not imagine what a healthy, except for a few pockets uh, here and there, what a healthy human population or human ecosystem looks like because for the most part, I think we're just not. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've never thought of it quite in the way that you framed it, but it's it's very true. One of the comments I've made many times is that many of us as farmers don't really know what healthy plants look like anymore. We've never gotten the opportunity to experience and observe. Yeah, and you're, you're saying that's true for our human population as well and for ecosystems. And yeah, it's absolutely the case. So I don't know how to unlock that, of course, but I, I do know with the podcast and, and we want to follow the pioneers, follow the people that are building things in this space and they will fail as well and they will hit walls, etc. But we want to be able to follow that because I think we owe it to them and owe it to all of us to, to really double down on, on that piece of, of health. One thing that's interesting, Cohen, about all of our journeys as individuals is that um, when we're paying attention and we're alert, we all develop our own unique perspectives and our own unique points of view. I believe that generally uh, almost everyone knows multiple things that I don't know that I would probably benefit from knowing and that they have different points of view on than I do. And so I'd like to ask you this question. What, what do you believe to be true about agriculture that is different from the mainstream point of view? What, uh, where, where do you have a perspective that is very different from those you commonly encounter? Yes, of course, you've got to ask this. I usually put your question as well and use it in a slightly different way on the podcast, but I always quote you. By mainstream, do you mean mainstream food and ag? Like really main mainstream or within regen? Uh, both. You can answer the question twice as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, let's start with mainstream. I think there's, in, in the finance world, there's an interesting piece as well. And we somehow, um, it's not the most imaginary uh, answer probably, but that farming could be profitable. Um, of course, many of your listeners will be very profitable and, and I'm happy for them, but I think in mainstream finance and somehow also the story we've been telling ourselves is that farming is struggling and and money is not there definitely it's in the land maybe but not elsewhere and if we keep repeating that story we meaning the general we then it's going to be very difficult to convince people that farming could be profitable and we see these examples of some and we always like think it's magic or they got something for free or not saying it's easy and you definitely have to invest a lot in ownership processing marketing sales channels value webs and and all of that but it's definitely possible, let's say, to make money with, with farming. And I think that, um, I'm, I'm going to call it a myth, let's say, is, is holding us back. Even though we have an enormous debt to pay to the soil, to the climate. There's Sally Calhoun, who is a famous investor in the space and, and grandmaker we've had on the podcast. And she said, yeah, we've been extracting so much that, yes, there's a debt to pay. But I'm absolutely convinced that over time, after a transition period, however long that might take, interesting returns are there. And I think we should repeat that because otherwise we always... People look at agriculture and food of like, oh yeah, these are, this is something I should do, but I'm not really interested from a financial perspective, but it also should be part of my portfolio. And we want people to be excited about it because there are opportunities to make good money. I'm not saying crazy money, never trust crazy money, uh, crazy returns, like always delete the deck when you get a, a very uh, a crazy return, but there's good money to be made in the sector. So I would definitely uh, take that as, a, as an answer for the mainstream. And if I then go to the VGN part, I think single solutions is, is tricky. I, I get so many emails and, and we've been ignoring men, not ignoring, I always answer, but like uh, a single input that's going to change the world. Biochar is going to change everything or this technology or software is going to make everything different. I think the single thing that's going to change everything 
a mentality in, in startups in general, in companies in general, but also in the re regen food or regenerative food and agriculture space is, is just not true and dangerous. And yeah, no, I, I lost like patience a bit with that. I think like, it's like, there's going to be, there's going to be a, a suite of tools. And even if there was one thing, we yeah. wouldn't be smart enough to pick it probably. In biological systems, there is very seldom one thing. And when there is one thing that has an outsized impact or influence, quite frequently, it ends up being a synthetic material that is man-made that has a negative outsized influence rather than a positive one. You see, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not deep enough into plant science, you know, but there might be one thing that's blocking it. There could be, but after that's removed yeah. or after that's um, adjusted, then there will be another thing blocking. So there's, yeah, we need a holistic view, which is a word we've been using way too much, but the amount of times I get a, an investor or a company coming, like this will change everything. It's just, yeah, just hard to believe. Well, it also it makes you question how well they understand the ecosystem and how well they understand the landscape. <laughs> makes you question the rest, the rest of the things they say. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Just like when you see crazy hockey sticks. I always see crazy hockey sticks in, in presentations. Sorry to drop, but do you see like after year three, everything goes to the moon? I'm like, yeah, I understand the function in Excel works like that, but it doesn't mean you should put it in a presentation. It just makes me question everything else you said as well. Like be better, but maybe that's also the, the humble, like, I don't know, in, in, in Europe and in Netherlands, people don't like when you shout too much. Um, so I would say oh, under-promise and over-deliver, but I also understand you have to bid over-promise to raise money. There's a dance there as well, and attention. But when I see these hockey stick curves, I was like, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. Like there's going to be a lot of challenges with building anything. And I I'm, I'm deeply respect anybody that builds anything from scratch ever. You know, there's this interesting phenomena in biological systems where it's my understanding that most biological systems develop uh, along the Fibonacci series of numbers. The variable for different systems is the time factor. Do you go from 1 to 1 to 2, 3, 5, 8, 13 in a matter of 20 minutes in the case of bacterial populations or... 20 years in the case of a, of a tree cycle or something like that. So there's this progression. But I've observed this interesting phenomena that organizations, human organizations, which are also really successful and really impactful, take the Savory Institute or there, there's a number of different platforms or groups that have had consistent staying power for decades. And they all share this principle that they start slowly and they do reach a threshold where it appears as if though the growth is faster on the surface but in fact there's a tremendous amount of history and depth and background behind it that took to get to that place yeah i mean it's an incredibly powerful force we have the the, the company maybe the, the most the strongest organizational form we have maybe apart from a revolution and once they exist for a while it's it's very likely they will exist for a bit longer and i hope that we see the birth of many regeneratively focused or even regenerative businesses, which is a difficult term, but something that, that's definitely possible. Like, how do we use that organizational form that can attract people and can really literally move mountains, attract a lot of capital, a lot of resources to do things, to shoot stuff to space, etc. How can we use that to regenerate at scale? Because if it's individual farmers by themselves, it's just not, it just the forces are too strong. It's just not going to go. So why, how do we focus on these regenerative businesses how do we make sure they're well capitalized with the right type of money and well resourced of course in terms of people that that are in this for the long run uh, i think we can literally move mountains and or probably not and we regenerate and reforest them but you you, you get what i mean 
<laughs> yeah, this this is perfect. Going this this leads me exactly to the the next question that I was preparing to ask, which is we we. I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> uh, we've been circling around this conversation of, I've just been calling it decommoditizing yourself. You've been describing the need to. Uh, take ownership over processing and marketing and sales channels and all these these various pieces. And now you've brought in the very important piece of doing it as a group, as a community, whether that's uh, as a company or whatever by whatever mechanism. And so within within that context, the the need to decommoditize, the need to develop processing and and develop pathways to market that aren't uh, dependent on the mainstream supply chains that presently exist. What is something that you wish? Or what is something that you think farmers would benefit from knowing and understanding about the pathway? What, how do we approach that in a, not in a holistic manner, but in a, what are the characteristics of those who have done so with success? Perhaps that's the question I'm trying to ask. That's a really good question. I think I would bounce it to people that have been doing that successfully. Like there, there are quite a few examples. You might not, they don't get into, uh, fast companies, top 50, faster growth companies, or, or into lists like that. But there are quite a few um, successful examples of producers getting together or, or of uh, processors getting very close to producers and have built a really long-term, very symbiotic relationship with each other, all the way down to the market or not, of course, depending on the crops, etc. So I would go there and learn, but you probably have to ask around quite a bit to find those that are successful, that are probably don't have a massive website or or media um, presence. And not because they're underground, it's part of some kind of conspiracy, uh, but simply because they don't need it and and it doesn't serve them. So we, I I would say in your crops, try to find examples. I think a big lesson there is stuff takes time and make sure you set up the governance in a way that it is for the long haul. Make sure you get the right type of money involved. Try to be as far away from extractive short-term stuff as possible. It's not always possible, but when you do know you're dancing with, with the devil, let's say, it's really like extractive capital comes knocking on the door on the wrong moments, uh, always. And it doesn't have to be super profitable as well. I think there's another misconception. Like processing, as long as it's farmer-owned, or even if it's owned by a nonprofit or owned by a cooperative or whatever structure you choose, as long as it brings more money to you and your colleague farmers and it pays the bills, that's also fine. Like there's no need to be in, build another extractive vehicle on top of you and your friend's farm just to, because it's nice to have a profit. Like, And there's quite a bit of public money available. So go and look there as well. There's quite a bit of interest. There's always a shortage of these kind of deals. There's always a shortage of how to how do you package this well? I mean, I was making fun of fancy PowerPoint slides before, but it does help to have somebody involved that that is able to speak the language of finance and able to to make things look nice, uh, make Excel sheets look nice because you can have the best plan with the best margins and and you know you're gonna do it, you know where you're gonna get the processing technology, all of that. But if you present it in a horrible way, it's gonna be very, very difficult to. Uh, to raise anything. So I think that would be my advice. Go to people that have done this in the past. Uh, they for sure made many mistakes you don't want to repeat. Find the right kind of people around you, of course, and the right type of money, uh, because otherwise it's uh, it's going to be very challenging. The amount of people, companies as well, that took the first money that was on the table and regret it later is, is an endless list. Cohen, I've really enjoyed our conversation. We've, we've touched on many really fun topics. What, what are important topics that we haven't yet touched on that we should talk about? 
I think the input space, I mean, uh, we, we've talked about it on it when you were, you were on our podcast, but um, it's something we, we somehow don't really cover a lot. Like what's, of course, we, we talked about the markets and how do you make sure you, you can sell against a good price and make sure some of that gets back to the farm. But we often underestimate, maybe there's also a piece there for on the input. Like if you get together with enough farmers, could you make a high-end composty extractor or like what, what things make sense in groups and not by themselves? And, and of course, you could also negotiate a better contract with you um, for inputs. But what I think there's an input discussion there as well. We always sort of magically think that we were going to be without inputs very soon if we go on this journey. I don't think that's the case. Um, but the question is, how do we get off the, the very, very dangerous ones? What one, Which ones are absolutely necessary to buy? Which ones can I do myself? Which can I do in a group? Um, what, what are your thoughts there? I'm just going to bounce the question back. Um, of course, you don't want to be out of business anytime soon, but I don't think you will. So. Well, actually, when you started answering that question, I don't want to avoid the question because it is an important conversation, but you triggered another thought that took me in a completely different direction. Ooh, please share. And that was, there is this, this narrative, this shared experience that entirely too many farmers have of being regenerative pioneers and being rejected by their community, being rejected by their neighbors and by the people in their immediate social network to say, oh, you're you've you've really left the cuckoo's nest um and <laughs> you're doing something really crazy yeah it's, we can laugh about it but it's horrible yeah, yeah it is horrible but you know all of a sudden just something about the way you you made your comment uh, about cooperatives and, and sharing inputs was like oh my goodness if we could actually get immediate social networks in the local regions to work together you could rapidly reach a scale to regenerate the small water cycles you know ryan holiday wrote this fascinating little book that is titled The Obstacle is the Way. And I like the title. It's it's really fascinating reading. But the, the point is simply that it is the things which appear most difficult that if you face them and you work your way through them, you you conquer them in a word. And I, I don't particularly like conquer in this sentence, but you overcome those obstacles. It is the very process of overcoming those obstacles that has the ability to completely revolutionize your life, the outcomes, everything around you. And it just occurs to me that, you know, we, we have this, um, this frequent experience of, of people not being, um, their new approach to farming and agriculture not being accepted. But in fact, first, we, we need to have, if we're in this position, we need to have our own support network. We, we need to have people that can be there to encourage us and support us and to help us through this process um, mentally, emotionally, and so forth from a community perspective. But then if we were successful in being, uh, not if, but when we are successful in being ambassadors and, and communicating the message and the opportunities and getting buy-in from our local community, that really is the pathway to regenerating local ecosystems and watersheds. Absolutely. And I've heard, oh, where, which interview? Ah, and the Great Simplification. Amazing podcast if you're interested in energy dependence and, and all of that. There was a region-focused farmer on and, and the interviewer asked the question, Nate Hagens, of what if five other people were doing what you were doing nearby? And nearby, of course, is a flexible term. He said, it would change everything because we're the weirdos, the different ones. We have to constantly explain. We still looked upon at the local soccer, whatever sport we play, club. And if a few around you are also in transition and that changes everything, not only from 
and the local barbecue conversations, but everything else as well. And for sure, if you get to scale, it will trigger that water cycle, the small water cycle restoration we're looking for. And probably many more things are possible if you are slightly bigger scale with three or four or five in terms of local production of certain inputs that don't need to be far away because they might not have a, a delivery date in, in time or they might go bad too soon or whatever you can do. And then you're tied in together. And I think there's a, a massive, just like we used to put the barn up together and, and did all of that. Why not on the input and output size as well? Yeah, so bringing this back to the question you asked me about inputs. and I see a whole network of decentralized ones now. Yeah, I see a future. Yeah, it, it, it might appear like a significant logic leap, but it wasn't at all. This is what my, my natural thought progression was that, uh, well, when you engage in regenerating landscapes, then you rapidly reach a point at which the only inputs that you need are inputs that are defined by your geological context and the geological landscape. So there are some landscapes where the foundational, the parent bedrock material doesn't contain enough selenium or it doesn't contain enough boron. And so it doesn't matter what you do from a, from a regeneration, carbon sequestration, watershed uh, regeneration perspective, there will always be certain susceptibilities to disease and insect pressure as a result of those nutritional imbalances that are a result of the parent bedrock material. And so in these local groups, they're would be tremendous synergy in collaborating on some of those key inputs that are needed. And, and, and I'm with you in, in your comment that you made a bit ago that it is entirely possible to get to a place where we are not on this treadmill of needing to apply inputs just to grow a crop and uh, purchase inputs specifically. And I believe that in, in this geological context, this geological setting, there are many regions of the world where we will constantly need to spoon feed small amounts of very specific things to just address deficiencies that exist in the ecosystem. I don't know if that was the answer to your question that you were looking for, but... It was, it was. I mean, it was, I wasn't looking for that specific one, but of course I didn't know what you were going to say. My progression of thought was that, well, the biggest input that most people are, or many farmers are most dependent on is water. It's like, that is the fundamental. What if you could grow that one? yourself with your neighbors exactly what if you could grow water collectively with a group of neighbors absolutely it sounds like a magic title again yeah and it's not a question of what if you can you can like we now know that is possible it's been demonstrated multiple times around the world on that note that's a wonderful ending we'll just leave it there to inspire all of your imagination inspire the possibilities that you can grow your own water and not only can you grow your own water you can ensure that you have water when you need it consistently throughout the growing season, not sporadically, not occasionally, not not to these extreme vagaries of the weather. I think, you know, perhaps the, the entire bottom line of this water ecosystems conversation is that for us as farmers over the last 20 or 30 years, particularly, we've experienced increasing vagaries of the weather extreme floods followed by extreme droughts in the same growing season, sometimes back and forth, yo-yoing back and forth multiple times per season. And what we are now coming to understand, and some people have understood for decades, is that this is in fact a function of ecosystem management, watershed management, as the term that you've used, Cohen, and that the way you manage plants in this ecosystem have the ability to regenerate and produce a much more stable 
water cycle where you get consistent rainfalls as many of us older farmers remember from 40, 50, 60 years ago. And in fact, in some regions, none of us living might remember, but it's still possible for those landscapes. So that's exciting. And that's something to inspire your imagination with. Yeah, and I, I'm just adding there, can you, how can you, as, a, as an investor, as, as somebody in finance, not be excited about that? Like there must be a way to help accelerate that with money. Yeah. Cohen, thank you for being here, for sharing your thoughts and wisdom and experience. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to uh, checking in with you in another 500 episodes and see how the world is different then. Thank you so much for this invite and for the great conversation and keep up the amazing work you're doing. Cohen, tell us, uh, tell us, tell our audience a bit, where can they find you? Where can they learn more about you? Sure. It's investinginregenerativeagriculture.com. Like we call the podcast exactly what we discuss, which is investing in regenerative agriculture. I think if you search region, regenerative agriculture, you get yours and our podcast pretty much. And on all the socials as well, LinkedIn, we're quite big. Uh, we have quite a bit on YouTube as well. But if you search investing in regenerative agriculture, uh, you will find uh, on all the podcast players, YouTube, Instagram, etc. Thank you, Cohen. Thanks for all the work that you do. I look forward to more conversations in the future. Thank you so much. The team at AEA and I are dedicated to bringing this show to you because we believe that knowledge and information is the foundation of successful regenerative systems. At AEA, we believe that growing better quality food and making more money from your crops is possible. And since 2006, we've worked with leading professional growers to help them do just that. At AEA, we don't guess, we test, we analyze, and we provide recommendations based on scientific data, knowledge, and experience. We've developed products that are uniquely positioned to help growers make more money with regenerative agriculture. If you are a professional grower who believes in testing instead of guessing, someone who believes in a better, more regenerative way to grow, visit advancingecoag.com and contact us to see if AEA is right for you. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to working with you.